The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Today's scripture reading is from Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 23. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted, because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called Nazarene. This is the word of the Lord. Praise Praise be to to Christ. Christ. Thank you, Caroline. Great job. Twice this morning. Really appreciate that. And uh, uh, Merry Christmas, everybody. Uh, Wonder how many times in your life you've heard that passage read for Christmas Sunday. Trauma, death, slaughter of the innocents, genocide. Uh, Merry Christmas, right? And yet that is the environment into which our Lord entered the world. And it's not something that used to happen to people of faith. It's not something that just happened to Jesus and Joseph and Mary, this whole environment of of political drama and violence uh, under the leadership of a tyrant. Uh, You may have actually seen the story on CNN just a couple of weeks ago, December 17th, less than a couple of weeks ago, it was reported that a hundred Christians were detained in China by communist authority, and here are the charges, for inciting subversion of state power. Out of that experience emerged an open letter written by a pastor who's also one of the detainees. His name is the Reverend Wang Yi, And the title of his open letter is, My Declaration of Faithful Disobedience. And in the letter, he declares his allegiance 
to Jesus Christ as his king and also his willingness to accept the consequences of that in a communist state. Here's an excerpt from his letter. I have no fear of any social or political power, for the Bible teaches us that God establishes governmental authorities in order to terrorize evildoers, not to terrorize doers of good. This is the very reason why the communist regime is filled with fear at a church that is no longer afraid of it. Those who lock me up will one day be locked up by angels. Those who interrogate me will finally be questioned and judged by Christ. Separate me from my wife and children, ruin my reputation, destroy my life and my family. The authorities are capable of doing all these things. However, no one can force me to renounce my faith. How's your Christmas going? This is real time. This is right now. He's still detained. In his letter, there is an irony mentioned. Did you catch it? The reason why these believers are in detention, are incarcerated, is because of big government fear of little people who have no fear of big government because of a little child. How similar the stories. The first advent, a government tyrant, exerts brutal force, initiates a mass genocide in order to silence his own fear of little people who have no fear of him because of a little child. And in this account, we see two remarkable things about real Christmas. The laughter of God and a call to arms. These are our two headings for real Christmas. The laughter of God. How can you laugh? All the way back in the second psalm, which no doubt would have been etched in the memory of Joseph and Mary and the wise men and the others, are these words from another king, David, king of the Jews, where he says, the Lord in heaven laughs at the kings of the earth who oppose his anointed. He laughs. So, who was Herod? Herod was the kind of king that the Lord laughs at. He was belligerent. He was bloodthirsty. He was a tyrant. When he came into power, the first thing he did was, was eliminate the entire family of the former dynasty. And then he proceeded to kill half of the ruling council, 70 priests and elders, 300 court nobles, his own wife, his mother-in-law, and three of his own sons. The historian Josephus, Josephus said that, uh, and he's a Jewish historian, said that, that Herod arrested dozens of well-known nobles in the region uh, shortly before he, uh, he died, and he issued another death decree, and he said, as soon as I'm dead, I demand that all of these well-known, highly esteemed nobles also be killed 
to ensure that there will be weeping after I die, because He knew that nobody would weep at His death. And here, because of a dream, Joseph and Mary are running. They're fleeing, it says, to Egypt to get away from Herod's decree, and Herod is, or from, from Herod himself, and Herod is furious, and because he's furious, he issues a decree that every male son, two and under, in Bethlehem and the surrounding region uh, be killed. And we're talking about the laughter of God? The laughter of God comes in retrospect at least from, from our perspective. So, think about, uh, again, Pastor Wang Yi, right now detained in China for his faith. One of the other things that he said in his open letter is, as far as I can tell, there has never been a 1,000-year government, but there are 1,000-year churches all over the place. There's a declaration that there's a greater king with greater power that no current king will be able to usurp. And that's precisely what happened with Herod. Herod died. As soon as he died, remember those nobles I was telling you about, those well-known, highly esteemed nobles, they were all released. None of them were killed. Herod's decree after his death was disregarded. There was no mourning in the streets. There was only dancing because ding-dong, the wicked witch is dead. It always catches up with you. Pride always is followed by a fall. A lust for glory is always followed by a legacy of dishonor and a pathetic story. The tables are turned. People all over the world still naming their children after Joseph and Mary still bowing even this day to Jesus as the one true reigning king. Now, this this phrase, Rachel, who is weeping for her children that are no more. Rachel, just a little bit of history, a little bit of Old Testament uh, background here. Rachel is the wife of Jacob, the father of the twelve sons of Israel. And those twelve sons ended up being, you know, the, the heads of the twelve tribes of Israel. And so, Rachel weeping because her children are no more is actually also a metaphor for the entire history of the Jewish people. The story of the Jewish people, and you just read, the, read, read, read about this not only in German history, but also in biblical history. It's a story of being taken out of your own land by force, uh, put in another land that you did not choose, and, and, and forced into hard labor and slavery. Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon, the great world power Assyria, and then the whole context into which the New Testament was written, Caesar's Rome. Rachel weeping because her children are always in exile. They're never home. They are no more. Which just adds to the, the, the irony that 
God says to Joseph in a dream to flee to Egypt. Flee to Egypt, which is that same place that the people of Israel fled from because in their ancient history because of another tyrant named Pharaoh under the leadership of Moses. You read the whole account in the book of Exodus. You see what God did there? These exiled people, Joseph and Mary and everybody around them, because of Herod's violent decree, are sent to their former place of exile. God has redeemed unjust ground and turned it into a place of sanctuary and a city of refuge and asylum. You see what God did? God's going to do that with the entire earth the end of days, when the second advent comes, Christ returns, every square inch of God's universe is going to be redeemed. Every venue and domain where oppression has happened, the wicked witch will be dead, and God's people will experience everlasting asylum and refuge. And it will be Herod's children and Pharaoh's children and Assyria's children, and Babylon's children who are no more. Rachel's children will be rejoicing forever. Isn't that something else? These great world powers, Babylon, Assyria, Rome, Pharaoh's Egypt, they don't exist anymore. They're gone, expired. This is part of the reason why Walker Percy says he became a believer in Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, who is God with us. He said this, one of the main reasons why I am a Christian is because the Jews still exist and the Hittites do not. This this whole essay about it, but he he talks about how the Hittites were once, you know, like, like Herod's you know, people and Pharaoh's people and Nebuchadnezzar's people and so on, and Roman Caesar's people. The Hittites were once a thriving civilization, and the Jews were a small, obscure, oppressed people group. And what Walker Percy says is, whenever you meet a Jewish person in New York City, it's remarkable that nobody finds it remarkable. He says this, where are all the Hittites? Show me one Hittite in New York City. It's remarkable how God has preserved over and over again a people who just flat out should not exist. And yet here they are, and here we are worshiping this child who was the reason for the slaughter of the innocents. You know, Malcolm Muggeridge puts it this way, we look back on history and what do we see? Empires rising and falling, Hitler and Mussolini dead, remembered only in infamy, Stalin a forbidden name in the regime he helped to found and dominate, gone with the wind, behind the debris of these self-styled sullen supermen and imperial diplomats, there stands the gigantic figure of one person, because of whom, by whom, in whom, and through whom alone mankind might still have hope, the person of Jesus Christ. 
The Lord in heaven laughs. And Herod, the joke's on you. The laughter of God. How, iron, how ironic it is. And then a call to arms. A yes to Emmanuel. We see it in this text. We see it throughout Scripture, really. A yes to Emmanuel is also a no to forces and philosophies and powers that contradict the vision that Emmanuel was born to bring and to advance. It's a vision for shalom, the comprehensive flourishing of every person, of every place, of everything, and and, and the complete eradication and elimination and burial of the disrepair of every person, every place, and everything. So, J.C. Ryle, uh, a bishop, now deceased, Anglican bishop, says that a true Christian doesn't only have peace, an inner peace, or a peace of conscience, but also war within. A a true Christian, J.C. Ryle says, is known by his warfare as well as by his peace. The Christian experience, he goes on to say, includes strife, exertion, conflict, self-denial. So, the the Protestant reformers talked about the church triumphant. We we sang about that this morning. Come all ye faithful, joyful, and triumphant. They also talked about the church militant, which is the same reason why C.S. Lewis said Christianity is a fighting religion. Put your boots on, because there's a battle to engage, and it's, it's it's a battle with forces outside of us, and it's also a battle with forces inside of us. Do we see Christmas this way? It's a season for battle. It's a season of war and of trauma, where brothers and sisters are present day more than any other day in history, imprisoned. Their lives are being threatened. They're not experiencing tidings of comfort and joy. They are not handed a cup of hot chocolate. They don't have a fireplace around which to comfort them. Some may be thrown into fireplaces. This has been the reality of God's Advent people as they've waited for the ransom of captive Israel. Do we see Christmas this way at all, or do we feel violated and maybe even offended and assaulted that anyone would have the audacity to read a passage about genocide to cool our warm Christmas American experience and give us the shivers? There's nothing wrong with warmth and comfy cozy. I'm going to fire up the fireplace today. The question remains for those of us who are comfortable in Zion. We rightly desire tidings of comfort and joy because those are representative of the world that is to come. It's what we're made for. It's how we'll spend the rest of eternity when Christ comes again. But if right now all we expect is tidings of comfort and joy… We're missing the whole point of the first Christmas. And maybe my job as a preacher is to ruin your Christmas today and wreck it. 
so that you might be wrecked and then rebuilt into what you're meant to be. You know, even our hymns can contradict the reality. Little Lord Jesus, no crying He makes, even while Rachel's weeping. You don't think that Jesus enter, enters into the tears of Rachel during Advent? The one who wept at the tomb of His friend Lazarus, and yet little Lord Jesus, no crying He makes? Sleep in heavenly peace? No, this was a time of war, not a time of peace. There will be a time for peace, but this was a time for war. Jesus came fully human, fully human, and became fully humiliated. He was on the run. He was a refugee on the run. That was the first Christmas. How did it make you feel? Honest question. How did it make you feel when we sang, Come all you faithful, joyful and triumphant, and then Luke introduces a song using a word like depravity. And then we sang about things like despair and deep sorrow and anguish and the hidden evils of our own hearts. Merry Christmas, everybody, right? How did that make you feel to have that contrast, to have that juxtaposition? Did you feel like you'd been transported from Christmas to Good Friday? And yet there's no resurrection without death. There's no real joy without a preceding sorrow. There's no waking up from the nightmare and having the best day of your life unless you have the nightmare. So you've got something to contrast it to. Christianity is a religion of both peace and war. It's a religion of protest. You know, every time we pray, thy kingdom come, that's a political prayer. Because what we're saying is Caesar's not Lord, Jesus is. Herod's not Lord, Jesus is. Trump's not Lord, Jesus is. Obama's not Lord, Jesus is. I'm not Lord, Jesus is. Your kingdom come, your will be done. It's a prayer of protest against a world that's in disrepair, against a world that is not the way it's meant to be, and against every force that makes it that way. Christmas was fiercely political. I mean, look at Joseph and Mary. They're disobeying Herod's decree by running. They're becoming refugees, fleeing to Egypt. They're not offering their son up to the dictator. And then Rachel weeping. It's a loud cry of lament and protest, weeping is. You know, Walter Brueggemann, the New Testament scholar and theologian, talks about speaking truth to power as, as one of the callings of the Christian church, to be the conscience of a world that is bent toward destruction. And specifically, Brueggemann, this is the phrase he uses, to confront things that devour humanness. Things that devour humanness, that's a justice phrase. This was the case, and, and this was the activity of God's people throughout biblical history. Moses speaks truth to power when he speaks to Pharaoh and says, you know, the Lord says, let my people go. What was going on? What was Pharaoh doing? He was exploiting workers, exploitive labor practices, cheap labor, squeeze everything you can out of them for your own gain without regard for their, own digni for their dignity and for their humanity. Or Daniel 
when he stood up to Nebuchadnezzar. What was it about? It was about religious freedom. I'm not going to bow to the state. I'm not going to bow to you. Throw me into flames if you have to. Throw me into a den of lions if you have to, but I will not bow to you, O king. I have one Lord and one king. And by the way, it'll actually make me a better, more life-giving citizen of your kingdom if you'll just open your ears a little bit, have an open mind. Or Amos stands up against policies and practices that cause the poor to be overlooked and neglected, and the least of these to be marginalized. And Jesus, about the sheep and the goats, whatever you did for the poor, you did for me. Whatever you didn't do for them, you didn't do for me. You ignore them, you ignore me. You, you move toward them and love them, you're moving toward and you're loving me. It's, a, it's a like we're one and the same. Sheep and the goats. And then if we go to history since the Scriptures, William Wilberforce, lone voice in Parliament, speaking on behalf of the abolition of slaves. And by the way, John Newton, who wrote the hymn that made us all uncomfortable, was one of his partners in that endeavor and his encouragement behind the scenes in that endeavor. Nelson Mandela in the apartheid situation in South Africa and the racial discrimination put his own neck at risk. Bonhoeffer stood up to Hitler. Solzhenitsyn stood up to, Holland, uh, to Stalin. King stood up to President Johnson. Koop stood up on behalf of the sanctity of all life, most especially the vulnerable in the womb. And now Wang Yi, standing up against a big government that's afraid of small people because they're not afraid of him because of a small child. So if I lack power, Christian obedience looks like this for me. Standing up against every power that devours my humanness and that devours the humanness of people in my situation. If I'm a person who lacks power, it's where we get people like Wang Yi and people like King. If I'm a person with power, on the other hand, I've got a choice to make. Either I can go the way of Herod, preserve and protect and do so through some form of aggression, whether it's through a macro kingdom like an entire you know, nation or a micro kingdom like my own home, where if you contradict me, I punish you, or like a traffic line, if you contradict me, I'll punish you, or like a, a disagreeing with me on Facebook, if you disagree with me, I'll punish you, right? We've got our little macro kingdoms, we've got our micro kingdoms. Michael Ware says this, if you have power in the political sphere especially, if you have power, here's your calling as a Christian. It's not to do what you need to do in order to protect your own rights and your own comforts and your own traditions. Your calling to Christian obedience is to use your political power, whether it's pressing a vote button or whether it's running a country is to love your neighbor as yourself. That's your calling. That's what God gave us government, so people can love other people as themselves. And, 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 and so big governments can protect small people from bullies. 
It's a religion of protests, fiercely political against anything and everything that devours humanness in the image of God. But it's also a religion of repentance. Nobody's off the hook except Jesus here. There's a Herod within all of us. Inside each of us is a miniature Herod. Inside each of us is an inner tyrant. And what does the church militant look like in that regard? Well, it starts by asking the question of the wise men, where is the king? And can I have an audience with him so that he can have an audience with me? And we hate this. Because it reminds us that the war that is closest to home is not the war against things or entities or ideas out there. It's the war within. You know, we're, we're, we're saying it right along with the song, you know, this is my life. You go ahead with your own life and leave me alone. And Thomas Nagel, the atheist philosopher, said something very insightful, very honest, um, and very convicting. He says, I have this fear of religion itself. I want atheism to be true, and I am made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God. I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. My guess is that this cosmic authority problem is not rare. It's in us too. You know, those of us who, who, who bow the knee today to the Christ child are also dealing with our own cosmic authority problems. You can have this, 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 this in my life. You can be the king over this, 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 and that. But don't touch my sexuality. Don't touch my business practices. Don't touch the way that I handle money. Don't touch the way that I treat people. Don't mess with my happy little kingdom. Don't tell me that my purpose in life is to deny myself, take up a cross, and follow you. My purpose, as I see it, is to deny, deny my neighbor, take up my comforts, and follow my dreams. And you're a supporting actor. And I'll follow you otherwise, but you're a supporting actor in that story. Who's the center of your story? Is it you? Then you don't get to celebrate Christmas. You don't get to be part of it. Christmas is fake. If Christ is the center of your story... If Christ is king, Christmas is for you. It's not only a religion of protest, it's also a religion of repentance. A Christian's lifetime assignment is to assassinate Herod, the one inside of us, to initiate a daily slaughter. And what this will look like over time as we daily assassinate the inner Herod is that many things that used to be attractive to us will eventually begin to nauseate us. And I think you know what those things might be. And many things that used to nauseate us will begin to sound and feel life-giving and beautiful and lovely and excellent and praiseworthy. And I think you know what those things are as well. But in the meantime, there's this war. The inner Herod against the inner King David who's the man after God's own heart. The inner Herod or the flesh is that self-centered aspect of us. The inner David or or the Holy Spirit is that God-centered aspect 
that God has placed inside of us. It says in Romans 8, to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind set on the flesh is hostile to God. It has a cosmic authority problem, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And so, if there's any time that you've gone against your own impulse, your own desires, your, your own ideas, your own feelings, your own tribe, and you, you, you've said no to those things because you had to say no to those things in order to say yes to the kingship of Christ, that is great news. Christmas is for you. Do you have to, do you have to present yourself as a, as a pretty little perfect package, complete to God, to be able to celebrate Christmas? Heck no. But, 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 but you, you want over time, year after year after year, to become a bigger, more, more full, more heavy, more weighty, more robust, large, well-wrapped gift. Never complete until the second advent, but on your way. On your way. It works three steps forward and two steps back. That's how growth, theologians call it sanctification, happens. Three steps forward, two steps back, three steps forward, two steps back, and so on. Trajectory, long view. No one is merely a victim. Even Mary and Joseph had an inner Herod. Even Mary and Joseph had to deal with the perpetrator within. I love the Buddy Green song, you know, Mary, did you know, the child you've delivered will soon deliver you. The final death blow to Herod is that, yes, this child that he was going after would be killed, but not on his terms, not on his terms at all. Jesus would be killed, but that would become the death blow to sin. It would also be, become the ultimate death blow to tyrants like Herod, such that death can no longer hurt Rachel's children. The glorious news of it all is this, that even people like Herod can be saved. Are you a tyrant in your home? Are you a tyrant in traffic? Are you a tyrant at your office? Are you a tyrant in any way, shape, or form? How can I possibly say that this could be for Herod also? Because of Saul of Tarsus. Are you familiar with that story? Wrote one-third of the New Testament. Like Bonhoeffer and King wrote a whole lot of letters from prison as a free man, no longer fearing big government, but big government feared him because he feared a little child. In one of his last letters, he says, I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. He was once a Herod type. He was once a Hitler type. But the grace of the Lord overflowed toward me with love. And here's a trustworthy saying, that deserves full acceptance, that Christ Jesus, Emmanuel, the little child, came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. If there is hope for Paul, a torturer, who would also eventually be tortured, if there's hope for the likes of Paul, then there is hope for the likes of anyone. Let that be your reason for saying Merry Christmas. Shall we pray? And let's close with words from the second psalm, which I referenced in the sermon, written by King David.
whose perspective was much different than that of Herod. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. But blessed are all who take refuge, who flee to Egypt as refugees, taking refuge from their own sinfulness. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Amen.